I want to start out just to give you a brief, brief background on each guy. Um, when I interview people at Mix Magazine for the recording world, you pretty much ask them, did you start playing guitar to meet girls? Is that what happened and how you got into audio? And it's surprisingly about 90% of the recording world. <laughs> so I would like to ask these guys, um, what, what's your entry? Did you come tech, audio, sales, George? Uh, mine came literally through playing guitar, uh, but mainly, that, mainly through composing. I got into composing and doing uh, a lot of jingles and that sort of thing. Decided, you know, I, I need to engineer my own things, and then <laughs> here I am sitting here. So there you go. But the audio portion came from, uh, uh, from composing mainly and trying to engineer my own stuff. And Justin Herman, to his left, is uh, I just formerly of Dolby and now works with Sony Engineering here in, in, with Tommy's group. So. No guitar. I started with violin, but I no picking up girls with violin. But uh, um, and I wanted to be a composer. I wanted to be an artist, and I found out I have no natural knack for that. And so the technical side is where my strengths are. And so I ended up being an engineer. And we at the at the very last minute we we got uh, Dolby representative on the panel. So thank you, Jose. Would you uh, and Jose had a wrestle with a. Uh, uh, Sheet of plywood, we just found out. So and, and I lost. And he, yeah. and he still made it down for the event. So, Jose, what's your background? Um, well, in high school, I, uh, I hate to say this, but I also took guitar class. But it was it, the whole how I got to this particular chair, uh, I have to thank Herb Alpert and Jerry Moss. Uh, back in 1988, they created a program called the Yes to Jobs program, the Youth Employment Summer Program. And that allowed high school students in the Los Angeles area and a few other metropolitan areas an opportunity to work in the entertainment industry. And I was very fortunate enough to be um, asked to work as an intern at AM Recording Studios in Hollywood. Uh, and that's how kind of everything started. And here I am now. Hi, that's highly, a cool story. Yeah, highly fortunate. Very well, well yes, done. I'm very, very um, fortunate. Eric Beam from Formosa Group. Um, was building a 714 sound design suite just yesterday when I called him. Yep. So your background, Eric. Yeah, um, like everyone else, I was in, uh, music was the intro, but not guitar. Who wants to play those annoying pitch instruments? I was a, <laughs> I was a drummer. Um, <laughs> but equal part tech, I mean, I've always been the family of engineers. I was a kid taking apart the home stereo at three type of kid. Um, long story short, when I moved out to California, I was doing, I was actually going for music and sound design was, was my, my goal at the time. This is 20, 20 something years ago. Um, happened to, I mean, being the geek that I am, I knew DAWs pretty well, which was, I mean, this is, there's still in the mix world, there's a lot of tape dragons still going on. Um, and a I, lot of, and a whole lot of DAWs at that time. Too, yeah. Right? <laughs> I mean, were, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And um, I got hired on as a sound designer for a very early interactive group um it got essentially i was landed at the pop facility in santa monica which i'm still at and uh i was the the young kid showing showing guys how to use pro tools and and uh elements of cubase at the time actually and you know that was in 1999 so now it's i mean i just i was surrounded by great minds got to uh, and that that building was purpose-built for for surround mixing um, I was just from a, from, from that was a 92 was just pioneering DVD workflows and mastering for, uh, ultimate, uh, Blu-ray in the early two thousands or mid two thousands. 
And um, it's just an evolution from there. Atmos is now, uh, or immersive in general, is uh, where we're at today. Thank you. And Jeremy, uh, also a Sony engineer. Now, Jerry, uh, Jeremy uh, occupies, you also mix, correct? Yes. Could yeah, you, that's correct. you dual background? You got the left brain, right brain going. Uh, I pretend like I have both. Um, so I, I started, I guess, similarly to a lot of the guys here. Mine was not nearly as cool as everybody else on the panel. Um, I was born and grew up in Texas where football is king. So my entrance into music was in marching band. And that's not a very cool band. Um, so the whole getting girls thing really didn't work out. Um, but uh, it did get me into music. And so I played in some just casual garage band sort of thing. And then actually got into recording our our sets or whatever. And that kind of led me into music engineering. And so I went to actually a, a college for music engineering and wound up out here somehow. So uh, it's it was a series of left turns, but it was a lot of fun. And, and, um, one more, one more warm up question uh, real quickly. First time you actually heard immersive sound that, that, that made an impression, not not on the trade show floor at NAB or anything, and, or maybe it was. Uh, no, actually, it was here. Um, I'd heard it a bunch of places, and Mark Mangini did a keynote here several years ago uh, for Mad Max, and we sat in, in a theater here, and I'd heard it before that, but it really didn't have that much of an impact. It seemed kind of like a big mess. That blew my, just, I came out talking to myself. It sounded so good. Um, it was, it had a, a profound impact. Now, some of that, I'm sure, had to do with, with Mark's incredible sound design, but the room sounded great. Uh, the whole experience was much different than I'd seen uh, where it had been mainly trade show type things. And it was like, you know, I don't know about that. <laughs> it seems like a, a little bit of a cacophony of sound. But that made a huge impression on me. The mix was great, and certainly Mark's, Mark's work on it was incredible too, but those all those elements came together actually at this event several years ago, whenever that was, you know, three years. Mark, Mark went on and won the Oscar that year. Yeah, he did. For that track. <laughs> it was no, yeah. no, no short thing. And then we ended up putting a whole immersive room in our in our uh, showroom also, just so we could start to to do with that. And Mark came and blessed it there, and that was kind of fun. So it was fun to have him there, and we sort of have a little. Uh, experimentation place there when things go wrong we can kind of put it in our lab and sort of scope it out and figure out where it's going so but but it was here actually to answer your question thank you um, Justin. um i went out to el capitan the first time brave was out that was the first title but um in terms of that installation you don't quite get everything that was there so i think that um you know i thought that was, was cool for a while but when i started working for dolby was doing a printmaster for Mockingjay 1 or 2, and there's a scene where uh, the main character, she's walking through a tunnel, and there's a bad ballast on a on a, one of the fluorescent lights, and you're walking behind her, and that ballast is moving along here, and it kind of just grounded me in that tunnel with her. So you're walking through, and I was like, man, this is cool. Like, I'm, I was living in the movie, and it wasn't just, so now it was like, this is... You know, it was it was immersive. Yeah, it was, yeah. And I, I raised uh, two daughters. Her name is Katniss Everdeen, by the yeah. way. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, Jose. Um, I think my first experience was when my friend Brian Slacks invited me to show me Io Sono. Uh, it was an, it was a one of the most recent installations. I think was at the Chinese one of the Chinese Man Theater rooms and I was blown away by it. 
just because I had been, you know, prior to that, it was all about 5.1. So when I first heard that, I go, wow, this is fantastic technology. And then if you, I don't know if it was me or the timing, but I think Brian left Iosono. I think might have gone somewhere else. But that was my first experience. That was the, that was the first time. Yeah, yeah, that's got me thinking. So the first time I heard the term immersive used in reference to audio was actually for a, um, this is before Atmos or DTSX was, was a thing. Um, POP was doing an installation piece for the 9-11 uh, museum. And they asked, so the creator of, of that exhibit asked for a immersive experience. It was the first time that I heard this. And we sat with him and we created point sources. So there's a room that, that's a theater. I've yet to see this in person. But he wanted, each time there was a interview or someone speaking was a different location with multiple screens. Um, so we came up with this makeshift, you know, putting speakers, overheads, just random for this installation piece. That was the first time, like, I was like, wait, I mean, this, this, there's something with this. Um, as far as theatrically, it was when we built Studio, Studio A at the time. Um, and Tim Hoog was working on either Game of Thrones or might have been actually uh, uh, hunting uh, uh, Jays. The that was the first time I sat down was was just kind of floored by the by the mix experience and being able to sit down and actually firsthand see what it can do is really really was the flipping point to me because I mean in, in general I'm pretty skeptical but that just won me over when they could see it firsthand what it can do. Jeremy, was it a dome stadium in Texas when it just went uh, in the marching band? No, that's not really immersive. That's just one sound going everywhere. Um, no, mine was, thinking about it, listening to you guys, mine was actually kind of in a couple of steps. Um, similarly to, I think, Justin, the, uh, the first time I heard anything sort of immersive was uh, we went to go see Brave, which was the first Atmos title. Uh, unfortunately, for whatever scheduling reason, we got tickets super last minute, so I was sitting way up in the corner. So I really enjoyed what the mixers did with the back left surround speakers. Um, but that was that was like a partial experience, I would say. And the only reason I counted is because you really could hear, when you're that close to the surrounds, something that's sort of an object, something that's flying around between a bunch of speakers and something that's like, a sound taking up the wall behind you and sitting as in a strange spot as I did, it was really like, oh, dude, this has the potential to be really cool. And so then sort of the the second step getting into immersive was um, I had seen a couple, couple of Atmos titles, uh, started to do some work and research and all that stuff. And um, uh, AMC Universal actually has uh, Atmos installations in all of their stages, including the small little 50-seat theaters. And I missed a screening of Kubo and the Two Strings, which is a great movie with a really wonderful mix. And so like three weeks after it came out, I went and saw it in one of their little small theaters and got to sit right in the sweet spot. And I have to imagine that movie sounded just as good as it did in the giant stage as it did in that little room. And that was another sort of point in my playbook for the object-based mixing where it can scale to the size of the room. And I mean, I still remember getting out of Kubo and the Two Strings going, oh, that was so cool. Um, and it was a really fun experience. 
Yeah. Again, like they said earlier with Mark Benjamin, a great track. We had that play to a great design. Totally, man. Absolutely great design. Um, which is a natural segue um, to the small, medium, and large. Um, I think five years ago when we started this, it was principally theatrical ac exhibition. And we're one step away from everything streaming and immersive. I mean, um, so the, these past five years, let's just start with George and then you who build rooms, um, everything. George, what's your take in the last five years from theatrical to now? Smaller stages. Well, I think people are, you know, some of those smaller studios are trying to, to sort of embrace this technology and they have smaller rooms. I think some of them are maybe even trying to, you know, make an edit suite into a, uh, a room but, or knock out some walls. So they're, 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 they are going smaller and I think, you know, I think they're going, you know, maybe some cases, you know, six to 800 square feet and smaller than that even uh, in, some, in some rooms. But uh, the, biggest, the biggest challenge a lot of times is ceiling height in that sort of a smaller room, uh, especially you know, when you go into a smaller room that maybe wasn't supposed to be that, it wasn't even supposed to be anything. It doesn't really have the proper acoustic treatment in it and the walls aren't treated correctly. So that, that's a, kind of a big bugaboo with me because we start these things and we, the first thing we look at is what's the place made out of. And then if we have to start to adapt you know, some kind of acoustic treatment, clouds or something in there, then that lowers the ceiling height and it starts to get into this uh, um, mathematical problem that there's no escape from <laughs> uh, without uh, some serious surgery. So the small rooms in and of themselves aren't as big a problem, but the ceiling height starts to really become a problem in them because you typically don't have a small room with a tall, tall enough ceiling to put uh, the necessary treatment in there. And people kind of look at the treatment as kind of a, a second. A lot of people don't even think about it, or they think about it, but they don't want to really think about it. They'd rather think about you know, the sexier things like you know, the speakers and the, the big components that are going to go in there, the easy things to think about. You know, what kind of speakers do you want? You know, brand A, brand B, brand C. Uh, what's the budget for that? And then you start to get into the, the, what the room's going to really sound like. It really won't matter what kind of speakers you put in it. If the room's not treated properly and the smaller the room, the more it even caves in by the time you start to uh, uh, treat it acoustically. So it's, it, it, it becomes a little bit of a challenge the smaller room, the room you get. We're, we're going to get back to that, certainly, on, the, on the, the need for the rooms and the walls, which are often forgotten. The rest of you guys, anybody want to jump in? What are you building down there, Eric, for most of Justin here at Sony? What, I mean, what have you seen the last five years? Anybody? Fire away. Well, I'd say um, when uh, the object-based and how you know, Atmos in particular is, works, it's you know, going from big to small, and the, the metadata works. And it's really cool to go see these guys you know, do a theatrical in the Holden big room and you're running into our little room and the mix is there. Everything's playing back the same way. You know, you can, you can trust that the motion that you're putting through the room is, is translating from big to small. And then you just have to worry about, you know, if that now it's near field and now we're doing, you know, we're trying to treat, um, get the dynamics into a container that works for a living room. But in terms of spatialness, that uh, it translates, you know, just as Jane was saying, from a big room to a small room, like it's, it works. And that's, um, you know, I think now after five years, we can start to trust it. And just to kind of tag onto that in terms of like the, the, the process of, of making the film. So generally, hopefully we're mixing these on a big stage, lots of clients, um, plenty of speakers. And then, like you said, we can take these into a smaller room if there needs to be updates or a second stage, but then going, 
even once again smaller than that. I remember when we first started mixing um, home theater, Atmos, Oro, whatever you have it, and there was a big concern of like, oh, we're getting into a smaller space and the speakers are going to be a lot closer to the actual listener. We're going to have to do a little bit of uh, dynamics adjustment, which is sort of a standard home theater thing. And then, oh, with these new formats, we're going to have to slightly adjust all the panning. And and actually, that wasn't the case because the the objects play well in small rooms just as well as large rooms. That goes all the way down to home theater. So you can basically play your mix, and you certainly have to do the standard adjustments, but there's no extra repanning of the work that you've done before just to make it work in home theater. It's it's really cool, actually. Now, now the translation works well, I understand, but to mix a Transformers, you still need volume. If it's going to play back an exhibition, I mean, if its primary output is theatrical, yeah, no, you need the volume. To, yeah, to, to say that, you can't go the other direction nearly as effectively. Uh, I think that you would really struggle to mix, uh, <laughs> let's take it all the way to the smallest, in the home theater room, I don't think that you could mix Transformers in there because you would get onto the stage and find a ton of problems that you didn't hear. But the, the, the translation of the objects in space um, going from large to small works wonderfully. Eric, you've built big and small. But yeah, I mean, in the last five years, I think the theatrical world has, is now pretty established with the immersive. And currently we're seeing now television is figuring out the workflows. And um, that is becoming harder than anticipated with with LA, with the size of broadcast mixing stages are are large, um, but this is for a format that is for, for for home. So working out, you know, figuring out solutions on how to comfortably sit a huge backline, but deliver for the home is current current day issues that we're working on right now. No, we can get into that later. I think that I think that regardless of the format that you're mixing in, whatever immersive deliverable you have to make, uh, it really falls to the equipment that you're using. If you can get uh, the performance of the speaker and amplification and be able to have that, that separation between speakers, you can actually make creative decisions that'll translate from one room to the other. Let's go. Right, and I think that's a lot of it is that you, know, you, you want to install for the room, like it, the, the architecture is the beginning of when you're, so, you know, we look at, you know, we're, we're looking at building a room for, for TV, but the room's bigger than, than Nearfield. It's long. If we were going to install a 714 or 916, there's going to be parts in that pan that are going to be missing. And so we're, we're going to be building it out theatrically so that when we pan through the room, we know what that pan's doing. Um, knowing that the metadata that we're writing will carry through to the near field. Is, that, is there other formulas for that? I mean, is that distance to screen? Is it, is it distance to the back wall? What are, a what lot are, of it is length of the room. Length of the room? Is yeah, that that's, I think mean, that's a big part. Because, um, you know, like, like a room like this has a pretty stick of the, the ratios of height to width to length are, are, are really nice ratio but this room is a lot longer so you're going to have a lot of holes without without filling so if you do 714 you have half the room is going to be missing speakers so. yeah correct me if i'm wrong i think it's also especially once you get up into the really big rooms it's also the 
the angle of difference between the speakers because it's if the listening environment is basically a dome, 714 works really well in a small dome. If you make the dome a lot bigger, your angles are going to get a lot uh, wider between the speakers, basically, which is basically what Justin was just saying. And so if you walk across the hall into the Holden or Novak, you're going to see that the speakers are more consistent so that you in the dome have a consistent listening experience and there's no holes dropping out between the speakers. So let's go ahead. I was going to say that as far as, um, as far as the approach for, uh, for our technology, uh, there is, there is an expectation of having a uh, equal amount of speakers around the room to help represent the information that you're trying to trying to do in, in a dub stage and have it translate to an auditorium. Um, we've, we've done a lot of testing in regards to how that translation occurs down to a 714 mix when you have to do the near field remix or doing the re-rendering of that information. And we try to apply different laws, different rules to help us try to establish some kind of continuity in transition between the two environments. Cool. Let's go back then. Let's go back large, medium, small um, differences and considerations. And, and George, I think that was a good starting point you got into earlier. We find this in the recording studio world all the time. Once you think you enter a near field environment, this was a bugaboo back in the early 90s. Like near field speakers came out and people thought the room didn't matter for a little while. And it's just not true. Well, again, the biggest, the biggest challenge that we run into is Firstly, people understanding what they're trying to do in the room, whether just exactly what you were talking about. A lot of times they decide they want to do one thing and then they actually, the workflow changes completely and they're mixing for a completely different uh, uh, format. But more than that, they don't, most people don't listen to, to and look to see what the room actually has to offer uh, or what, it, what its shortcomings are. And, and a lot of times that, that creates enormous problems with, uh, with not, you know, they think they've, got the wrong speakers, it's not translating well. All these, these issues come up from, from the room, and the room really dictates you know, what, what needs to happen next. You know? And, and you know, a room like this, is, I think, would be pretty easy. It's a great room. <laughs> but, but unfortunately, almost, almost nobody has, uh, starts out with something like this. So, what, what are you guys' primary considerations? Are they like the budget's a consideration for any project you enter? <laughs> um, yeah, and you look at, like, just the architecture that you have is going to, I mean, construction is going to be a huge part of your, of your budget. That's good. <laughs> that's that's, that's like, it. Yeah, buying the speakers and the amps is. That's easy. That's easy. You know, you think about outfitting a room like this and it's like, you know, okay, if we have, we go to Dolby and say, okay, we, can we do five on the wall? Because we got these, uh, these, these treatments that are going to set us up real nice. And Dolby goes like, you need seven. It's like, oh, okay. So how are we going to make, the room we have work, you know, and that's always kind of what it ends up coming down to is like trying to go back and forth with what's, what's the right thing technically for the room. And then what's the right thing architecturally for the room and trying to marry the two into something where you know. art and economy meet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, for sure. I mean, building a room from scratch, you, I mean, you're there from the design stage up and you know, anything you can imagine is possible, but retrofitting older rooms, that's, that's where the challenge is. Well, that I've had, especially, you know, we're talking about overhead. So a lot of the rooms that I've been dealing with are, have crazy ceiling treatments, uh, a lot of elaborate woodwork. Um, we've just had to take a step back and see what is 
still necessary and you have to sacrifice some aesthetics that you might have fallen in love with over the years but uh uh figuring out ways to get get these new formats into older rooms is much harder than it is. That, that's that's, that's mainly what it is right i mean how many people yeah. are doing new construction almost nobody yeah, I think to add a, something kind of specific to what those guys were saying, a lot of consideration, e even actually possibly whenever you're um, building a stage from scratch, which doesn't happen all that much anymore, but with the new immersive technologies, uh, you actually have to consider the ceiling. And before you had to consider a cloud or uh, like the sound uh, insulation and paneling, sort of the acoustics of the room. Now you have to like architecturally consider the ceiling because it has to support speakers and generally they're fairly heavy and there's wires running through the ceiling. I mean, there's a whole set of considerations that uh, you've not really had before, especially if you're updating an old room. Who's above me? Is it the air conditioning? You know, like all sorts of stuff, so. Yeah, the minute you start to open up that you start to open up, you know, air conditioning issues and HV the HVAC starts to come in. But to, to just reiterate a point, by far the biggest expense is the construction expense. The the gear is is nothing compared to especially well if you're building a room from like from the ground up, then that's obvious. But what you don't think about is all the little um, or not so little things with the ceiling and then HVAC, and then you run into in certain rooms, uh, you know, um, fire um, problems, all all kinds of issues. So you really want to get somebody that's a qualified, uh, licensed contractor that does that kind of work that does studio work there are a million contractors around and i can't tell you how many people There's only one in la westlake well, <laughs> no well we don't we're not we're not really a contractor so the, I, in fact you i thought design, but you design built you design yeah, yeah but i've often thought maybe i should go into the contracting business because those, those are the guys that are making the money um but the but the point i'm trying to make is that before you just grab and go after a contractor make sure they have done studio contracting work uh, we have a number of them that we use because we use the same ones because they kind of know what the what the what the drill is. But gosh, I can't tell you how many people who are totally you know good uh, honorable contracting people, but they just have not done it before, and it's very very different work. What are, what other considerations are there? Power, electrical, wiring. What are, what other considerations do we need to take in when you're if, if if you're in the audience and you're thinking of retrofitting and you're you're pulling your old wire, you're pulling your old cable. What are you doing? Yeah, I mean, speaking of power, I mean that 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 alone will dictate speaker choices for a large extent. If um, if you're talking about power speakers, that's that's 120 along with it. Um, yeah, don't do that. And uh, <laughs> and also, if so, small spaces and large spaces, in my opinion, are at the edit suite side. You're dealing with one sweet spot. Um, that is something that you can, you know, mathematically and logically figure out speaker placement much easier than mid-sized rooms, television rooms where clients are spread out, you know, eight feet behind the mix position. Um, that's when or, or a lot more. Or a lot, yeah. Whenever a studio decides mm, this is really important, let's have the entire thirty-person studio show up. Everybody gets really friendly. Yeah, you know, and so working out techniques and you know monitoring system custom monitoring systems to deal with 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 speaker arrays that are they're non-standard i mean this is i mean you look at, at at white papers and you're supposed to do xyz but you've got 
clients that need to have a good sense of what they're creating along with the mixer. Um, you know, this is this is still some gray area that's being. being yeah, I would say B-chain controls that you kind of yeah. brought up with that. Um, there are products now that are coming out that you're getting close to an in-the-box you know solution, but for a lot of times, you know, because Atmos is so or any of these immersive formats are kind of fluid per room, ends up needing to be custom. And so I know like Westlake and a lot of guys, you know, offer the service to to program um, a BSS or or a QSIS system that gives you that control that you need. Um, and that's something that's brand new to immersive that, you know, cause you can buy a five one, you know, B chain controller off the shelf. There's really not much for, uh, for immersive. And there are like the Intonato and I know Yamaha has one now too. So those are getting there, but you know, it's for, for bigger rooms, it is, you need to have someone do the programming. The, the, real, the real question is before you start any of this, you really absolutely have to sit down with a group of people that you work with all the time and figure out what your workflow is really going to be. Don't, don't leave it up to somebody like us to try to figure out what's gonna work for you, because it'll never, it'll never work. Um, we have an idea of what we think is a way to go, but what, what inevitably happens is, unless you have a lot of conversation with people you work with and then talk to people like us or like anybody up here and get an idea of what the rest of the world's doing and really think about what this room's gonna be, like how many people you're gonna try to fit in, who's gonna be listening, where are they gonna sit, is it really gonna work for that, uh, how you're gonna, how, who's gonna be using the room, what, what, what type of people are going to be mixing and engineering it? Get their input on how they work, rather than getting it all set up and then six months into it going, you know, uh, let's start doing this. Let's this isn't working right. This, you know, we can't really set or dictate, you know, what the workflow is going to be. You really have to have a a lot of conversation about that before you worry about any of this other stuff. Do you, got, do you guys involve the editors and mixers in those meetings when you? Thinking about a room. I mean, well, even if you don't necessarily in, involve those people, you—he's totally right. There's non-technical elements to what we do. It's a—it's a business. We're mixing, we're editing, we're designing sounds, and there's probably going to be clients, other people in the room. Um, so to to get really micro, just for a split second, sometimes you have to consider like, hey, we need snacks in this room, and so this loud room that rumbles, we need to make sure that every time we hit something really loud, the snacks don't like rattle off the table. <laughs> or they spill their coffee all over themselves. Like a couple of things that have actually happened when you're putting up a new room, you know? Um, and you want to make sure that stuff isn't resonating. Like there's a bunch of micro stuff that goes into the build. I mean, and that's more of the end of the process than what we were just talking about. But yeah. totally, you have to consider the real world elements of it because designing a stage uh, in a architecture program is totally different than actually building it. And so like we were talking about a second ago with Eric, they, there's clients sitting in the room and in bigger rooms, it's probably going to be more clients in a home theater sort of space. It's probably going to be one or two, you know, and those are considerations that go into it. So to loop all the way back around and ask you your question, you also have to consider on a big stage, there's going to be two, three mixers, editors that all need to be able to hear what's happening in the sound field. And so those people and those things are certainly considerations. And so uh, here at Sony, we definitely, the editors and mixers definitely got involved um, trying to bring up those things that maybe we weren't going to think of on paper. And then the engineering staff did an awesome job of like laying it out technically, hey, here's what we actually need. And then there was like almost a second round at the end that was, okay, we've got 
it all put in, let's have another brain trust meeting and say, what do we need to do now that it's all here? You know? Yeah, I would say um, when I talking to mixers and editors, the big consideration is like, you know, if you're doing, we're going to do an HBO show. What's the backfield like on playback? Oh, they bring 20 people in. Okay, we got to find a way to make 20 people sit in this room. Okay, who's really giving the notes? Five? Okay, we got to find five in a sweet spot. We got to build a sweet spot that's good for five people plus the two mixers. Um, so that, and then you start building around that. You know, that's a big. Be glad you're not in the ad agency business. That's 40 people in a smaller room. Yeah, um, and um, I'd like to add to that if I may. So it, definitely, the the regardless of whether or not you're doing a, a legacy upgrade or a new installation, definitely the discovery process is very very important. Um, and that's the you know based on that type of information that our customers are asking for, is how we customize the the uh, ultimate layout for that room. You know what is going to work. In regards to the sweet spot, how big does the sweet spot need to be? You know, can we focus on on the five that are important, or do we need to expand that to include a much larger producer's desk? So definitely, uh, incorporating the right people in the early phases of discovery is very important. It, it does take time, correct? I mean, because one of the things that concerns me, or I'm going to be watching for, is we're at a point where we got right. Um, uh, Sky, uh, Netflix, people are demanding it for television, episodic, right? There's money to be made here. There's money to get that contract. We're in sort of a hockey stick growth here in terms of rooms converting, and there's going to be a lot of rooms slapped up there that might might not be up to par. I mean, what would you think are the things to avoid for people, people thinking of retrofitting their own room or anything like that? What are the things to look out for? Well, I take the Dolby considerations uh, seriously, and, you know, when you... You know, you get a Dell RMU, you're going to get it from a third-party vendor that is going to vet the programming of that RMU for the room. And so, you know, that whole process is, you know, I mean, this is what Jose does day and day. is is proving that people are installing the speakers and the amps and the location. And, you know, there's the, the, the checklist of 100 things that are done right so that you don't get to the day, to the first day, and, and turn the whole thing on, and it doesn't work. I mean, knowing, really nailing down which formats you're going to be dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis from the start is key. Um, it's you know, if you build a seven-one-two stage and you have to deliver seven-one-four, you just got nowhere to go from there. I mean, that is. I mean, I've seen I've seen this done, um, and like once, yeah. right, <laughs> and. Um, and like Justin was saying, the B chain side of the equation now is is immense. It's uh, I mean, as from the tech standpoint, it's pretty exciting. But um, dealing like speaking with mixers and figuring out what they're going to need for their basic mixing tasks. It, it really yeah goes all into yeah. talking about this before you start this process, so you're not in that yeah. situation where you're missing two subwoofers. <laughs> and it's not just. Just the B chain, you know, we, we have to have discussions regarding the A chain as well. You know, how many Pro Tools rigs are you going to have? Are uh, you going to have uh, dialogue music effects? Are you going to have a recorder? You know, where do you want the, uh, your encoder to be in, in regards to the recorder versus the source elements? Where is it all going to live? Where is it all going to live? Do you have power? Do you have enough space in your rack? 
Do you uh, have the, electric, you know, the amperage to, to support all this? Do you have enough sufficient HVAC to be able to, you know, keep all your equipment from, from going and when into you put those three breakdown. people in the room that you've never had in that room before, do you have enough HVAC to support that? And is that going to start to rattle things again when that really gets going? And those are really critical components that the, the easy stuff's like, how many speakers do we need? That's, God, you can get anybody to do that. But what you need is somebody with some experience about how you want to work and get a bunch of people. Back to reiterate, you've got to get people together to talk. Otherwise, you're going to get a year into this thing and go, okay. I've got it figured out, except it's already built. A year, my season starts in two weeks. I need a room. Yeah. 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 Well, no, you'll have a room, but but you'll get done with that season and go. Okay, now I know what I need. Yeah. yeah. I mean, in, in addition to all of that, it's like, where do I plug in my iPhone? And like, there's clients, and seriously, there's crazy considerations that you've never thought of. Like, you build a whole stage once, even with those brain trust meetings, and you get to the end and go, oh, dude, we forgot. So as long as you forget the small stuff, you're good. But like. Yeah, it's funny you said that, and I was just thinking about it. The format thing is really important because there are speakers in entirely different locations. Oh, hey, we need to do IMAX. Oh, man. Well, let me figure out if you can put giant speakers up in the corner and have a totally different B-chain set of EQs. Let me think about this for a minute. You know, like, that's not something you can have last second and go, it'll be fine. Um, so it, those things, yeah, the, the, the big to the small, the which formats you're going to have, what the clients need, all the way down to where do I plug in my iPhone. I mean, it's building a stage is certainly complicated. Let's, let's go back to the A-chain a second for workflow considerations. Um, high channel counts, high bandwidth across this. What are, what do you, what do you do on the front end? And are we heading toward a networked audio world and running this all around in Cat6? Uh, what are the workflow considerations right now? Yeah, I think we're already in that world. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I mean, Formosa is pretty much all, all Dante at this point. We have one home theater space that's that's Maddie, um, strongly because of Sony, because uh, with uh, with 96K archiving in source sessions, um, the going Maddie was an easier way to SRC in, into the RMU uh, at the time. Um, that was you know, two years ago. Uh, but uh, I mean, network audio has, has proven itself. I don't think there's any, any going back from, from this point. Yeah, yeah. It's still development to work out. What I'm talking yeah. about, it's still, you're still learning about it. What, what are the pitfalls that you found with Dante? Pitfalls. Uh, the only thing you have to make sure that you have all the um, clocking correct. I mean, but as far as not none, they and, and the SRC's stuff's been uh, figured out now. Just to clarify, from what well, you're yeah, there's ago. there's solutions now. So if you're still working with an RMU, which is a MATI input, but some of our our newer stages. Here's Dan here from our NoHo um, facility. Is hi Dan. Dan. <laughs> he's um he's he's Dante from from start to finish. And um, with 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 the current RMU, yeah. and uh, that's it's, as far as I well uh, aware, it's worked out really well. Um, would, but he hasn't been dealing with ninety six k source machines. Um, but now there's, I mean, Focusrite has put out red devices that will easily solve any of those uh, SRC issues. You can you can put boxes in to fix that. That's that's figured out. The, so so like going forward, there's no. Considerations that you can think of off the top of your head. So we'll go with no. no so what about, um, yeah, what if, do you do uh, routings done through your web GUI? Uh, 
summing? Do you have it? You just do you route it into Pro Tools and do your summing there, or is there any type of like? No, uh, yeah. So so all so all summing is done within Pro Tools. Um, playback machines will will be feeding feeding the RMU or a recorder. Um, the RMU will be spitting out the the re-renders of whatever formats are, are required. Uh, but yeah, the summing isn't done outside of the uh, DAW. And do you guys use uh, sort of a old school setup uh, meter machines, like an external um, meter display uh, for anything like that? Because what we've found here is actually a really good thing to have the MADI around for is um, some of our frames, we've kept uh, the Harrison meters, which are a beautiful meter setup that Sony already had. And so we will basically, whether it's Dante or Maddie, uh, go from Pro Tools to Recorder, some in the Recorder, um, usually report directly to the RMU from there. All of that's sort of a standard chain, definitely all moving towards Dante. But uh, one thing for us, specifically because of the Harrison, is having a, a couple of Maddies available so that we can meter on really nice large meters yeah. is really helpful. For sure. I mean, for the for the newer facilities, um, there's no legacy legacy technology. So, right. So, yeah. You know. So, um, Bill Johnston and, and Dan, they've they they built beautiful high tech solutions for that. You know, we we have full size screens on the front of the uh, stages for metering. Um, it's hanging off the recorder, plug-in based at the uh, at this time, but you can customize it to whatever your requirement is. Yeah, for you, don't, that you, show. you almost don't need the the connection from machine to machine anymore because right. you put the meters in one of the machines that already has to be there. Right, yeah. and then the the facility I'm in, so we're it's an XDFC house, so I had a plethora of 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 Maddie to whatever I/O laying around. Um, we went Dante to Maddie boxes for if I want something to power near fields, headphones. So the facility I'm at does a lot of multi-purpose work. We'll be doing VO, ADR, um, television, home theater. So I have had all these utilities and all this wiring that was already in place. So I, I figured out which boxes I needed to have the back end be Dante, but use this great conversion that I've just had on hand. I mean, it's, it's economical as well. Yeah. No, I mean, that's that's definitely the thing is, uh, it's kind of like you were saying, it's, it's a process that's ongoing. So there's almost some um, considerations right now that honestly, probably in even a year, we aren't really going to have because the the technology keeps moving forward. So right now, uh, we've got uh, a little bit of old or we're pulling from what we have to make the budgets work to go all the way back to every project has a budget. Well, we already have meters and they're awesome. So let's roll with those and we can take that money and put it somewhere else. But at some point, if that becomes problem, we're going to move that technology forward. And then the MADI that we need for the meters is going to go out the window. We'll go to a software solution or, or whatever it is. So it's it's definitely an ongoing list of considerations. Like by the time, if you're building a stage and then you're going to build another stage, the list of considerations will change, not just because they're two different rooms, but because the technology has moved forward and you're going to have something else as your set of issues or your budgetary restraints or the technology that's available. I mean, it's it's constantly changing. And that's why getting with guys that do it all the time and follow the technology um, is, is going to be crucial if you've never built a stage for yourself. Like if there's people in the audience that are looking into bringing Atmos or Aura or whatever into their rooms, um, talking to guys like Westlake or uh, any of us up here is going to be really important because if you read an article six months ago, those things have probably changed. I mean, there's a lot 
that's seriously, I'm thinking of the rooms that we've done here. Every time it's a totally different list. What's, what's, what's the weak link then? What, what's the weakest link in building a room? Are we, are we established? Well, if we're talking about A-Chain, I mean, to come back to your... To the workflow? The, yeah, yeah, workflow. I mean, A-Chain right now, Pro, uh, Pro Tools with voice count, when you jump into an immersive world, is uh, and, a and to, and to add on to that slightly, it's also because we've gone uh, almost fully uh, Pro Tools mixing. There's a lot of plugins that we're using now that are maybe native only, and they sound really cool, and I, and I support those plugins. But if you want more tracks, you're going to be eating a lot of DSP going in and out. It's a whole, it's a very specific issue. It's very specifically yeah. related to Pro Tools. But um, that's also a consideration is the plugins that people are using versus the power of the machine. Yeah, I mean, software has always outpaced hardware. But I can say this. I know that there are things coming down the road in 2019. Right, Jerry, from Avid? <laughs> Um, so the, I think it may address some of the, I mean, you know, I think there are always going to be this uh, catch up between uh, hardware to software. It, it is, uh, since I can remember, and I can remember a long ways ago, uh, so, uh, hardware has never been able to keep up with the software that's being developed. And I don't think it'll change anytime soon. Um, but that is a big deal, is if you're used to using certain things, you may have to re rework some of your work. Isn't stuff. that why we had ADATs? That hardware never There you go. <laughs> I rest my um, Anything else? I was saying, um, thinking about, about A-Chain and when we uh, were designing Theater One for Will Files was, you know, um, was sort of, it was again, it was a discussion of what are we going to be doing and how, you know, and for, for that room we wanted to be really flexible. And so we have one, one Pro Tools that has uh, three Matty. So if Will wants to go in there and do his own thing, there's one that can do everything. But then if we want to do a two-man mix, uh, we're going to have two machines. How are we going to route between those? And then we end up have a third machine. And a lot of that just turns into, we want to get all these machines talking to one recorder. We want to put a router in between. So we added a, the, the Harrison router. And so that kind of stuff was just like, you know, again, there was the conversation with like, what do we want the stage to be? And that stage is supposed to be for ultimate flexibility. So we paid a premium having a lot of machines, having the Matty, the Matty router in between to get that flexibility. Hey, we're gonna open up to questions. So think of your question, Linda's gonna come around, but um, what, we have this catch-all that we do at the What else is coming? What's, what's your dream? I mean, what, what would you like more than anything for Christmas? Uh, well, I'll, I'll tag on to what Justin was just saying and then, and then also do that. It kind of ties into both. Uh, one of the like last considerations I'd, I'd say out to anybody setting up immersive is with uh, object-based formats, your recorders are going to be um, potentially a lot bigger if you have a lot of objects or a lot of uh, wide stems. And um, after a couple of iterations of versions of recorders being across multiple machines or uh, being on one machine that's got a, a very large number of tracks, um, I can pretty much tell you that one very powerful machine with a lot of I.O. 192 or possibly more would be the answer to the current question is I would love even more than that um, because having one recorder allows you to do a bunch of uh, busing, have deliverables, have meet specs if you're in broadcast. Um, it, it opens up so much flexibility for doing all of the things that you need to actually do on a stage and you don't have to actually have physical hardware going back and forth between multiple recorders. 
And so to, like I was just saying, answer the question that was just asked, looking forward, having a recorder have possibly even more inputs, but more power is going to open up all of this mixing that we're, that we're doing. Because if it's powerful enough to um, mix with lots of plugins and 600 or more tracks, um, it's certainly powerful enough to deal with the recorder. But we have to make a lot of stuff possibly at the same time. And that's a really big thing. More power, more speed. Um, questions? Raise up your hands. You've got a rare opportunity to have a technology team up here that most people don't get to ask questions to. He's sitting by Wilf. He's sitting by Wilf. Uh, watch out. <laughs> uh, Chris Jacobson here. Um, consideration for, say, limiters on the outputs, because when you get, a, say, a 712 and you're hitting very high levels and then you're adding objects on top of that, you're you're bound to get some uh, distortion. Is there a solution for that? Oh man, I'm gonna I'm gonna tag onto this and maybe that point it at Dolby a little bit. Yeah. yeah. So um, so you bring up a really good point because it's not even just the 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 seven one two and the really loud levels with the objects. Even if you just have a broadcast uh, mix in Atmos, which has multiple beds as part of the print master, you're also summing those beds after your limiters and um, Chris brought up a really good point, which is that that's something that we have to contend with, with Netflix, Amazon, Stars, I mean, you name it. Anybody that's doing broadcast that has specs like that is going to have to, I think, legally meet a requirement of a certain peak level. And something that we do in 5.1 and 7.1 and every other format other than object-based formats is limit with true peak limiters, which basically takes a lot of the guesswork out for us. We can mix and we can make it sound awesome, and we know there's this limiter, this piece of software, doing the hard work for us, basically. And when we've transferred the summing into the RMU, which is awesome, and it means that it can go into a bunch of different rooms and sound really awesome, or go to somebody's home theater and sound really awesome, it means that we need some sort of limiting functionality as part of that. So. Yeah, I mean, that's that's definitely a, a current hole right now. We're, right now, we're being forced to take the re-renders, whether it's a 7.1 or 5.1, and and base our metering off of that for, for the full mix. Um, then Which you have is to, also additional summing. So you're taking something yeah. that's possibly yeah, 7.1.4 and, and re-rendering it is the, the terminology for uh, basically just a meter's sake. And what happens is, let's say maybe your 7.1.4 isn't clipping through some magic that then you're taking that and summing all of that down into less speakers, adding more signal together, and possibly clipping your 5.1, which means you're turning down your mix, or at least your uh, peaks, to match the spec of something that might not be accurate, and it's a really hard place to be in. Yeah. Um, and so, not necessarily you, but that's something that we have to work with, with Dolby and the other guys to make something that we can get back to having a true peak limiter that means that we can mix and have something do that hard work. I think a lot of it is to to give confidence to whoever's receiving it, Netflix, HBO, whoever, to say, yes, this is in spec. But also to have why we're working to know that we're, we're going to be hitting that numbers. I mean, really, Dolby has it built into their codec that you're not going to clip. like. Once it goes to True HD, once it goes to Dolby Digital Plus, it's taken care of. Right, except for the government wants it at minus two. Yeah, so that's the thing. Like, so. it comes down to proceed volume. We want to, we want our dial norm kind of 
in check. But the thing is, like, yeah, you got QC guys that said, I don't care. I, it peaked. Yeah. But the peaks don't matter. But it peaked. Right. right. So, okay, so then maybe it's not working with Dolby. Maybe it's yelling at the government, and that works great. Um, but it's, it, there's, there's a problem, and, and Chris definitely pointed out that it's kind of a big problem because going forward with cooler mixes and more Atmos in home theater and in the theaters, all of that is awesome. Specifically for the broadcast side of things, it's less awesome that we have gone kind of backwards in the technology for limiting our mixes to a spec. Yeah, I mean, there's a hole for multi-channel limiters for sure. And there's also the lack of DAW support. Um, you know, Pro Tools is peaking out at 712. Uh, I want a, I mean, speaking of Christmas presents, I want custom buses. I want to dictate how many channels and what they're doing. I mean, yeah, I mean, at least, I mean, at least support formats higher. I mean, the current and And, and that'll standards. definitely help yeah. with, with channel-based formats and all of the stuff that we're doing with video games and, and, and stuff like that. But it, at a certain point, if somebody else is going to be doing the final stage of summing, whether that's Dolby Oro, someone we've never heard of in VR, et cetera, et cetera, there has to be functionality for that. And to be honest, right now, there's not. Jose, do you want to you better you want your toe back for Christmas? <laughs> no, actually, uh, I was actually going to um, in, uh, mention that it's this type of forum uh, and the type of feedback that we get from uh, no Emmy-nominated Chris over here and, 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 and our colleagues up here is how we are able to introduce new features and be able to actually have that, that brainstorming session. You know what? We never thought of that. Why don't we put some effort into that and see what kind of results we can get from it? Any more questions? Linda Rosner, who has been here from the first day of Mixed Presents Sound for Film. Thank you. Uh, this might be a question everybody knows, and it might be obvious, so excuse me for this. But with the visual format, uh, Amazon, Netflix, they're all demanding that everything be posted in HDR. Is there a similar demand for audio from the short, short answer? Companies? Yes. Yeah. There's, there's also a longer answer, though. Um, so I'll, I'll just pipe in super quick. The short answer is yes. Netflix, Amazon, um, Stars are the three that I know of concretely. I'm sure there's a lot more, but they, Apple, Apple they want to make the latest, coolest, greatest stuff. Some of them are either coming from or are technology companies. So there's a almost like a pop culture drive to be able to say, dude, we've got the coolest stuff. And that's been true for years. I mean, that's why we try and make theaters cooler and better projectors and brighter and 3D and whatever you name it. Mixed results on 3D. But um, it's, it's part of the culture of moving forward and having cooler things. And so that's why we had a bunch of the theatrical stages go in. And that's why we are having a bunch of broadcast uh, slash home theater market, Netflix, whatever you want to call it, rooms going in now is because they're going, oh, wait, this cool new toy's available. Let's use it. Time for one more question. Last going once. Go up. The man in the back row. The man in the comfy chair. This is for the Sony uh, gentleman there. What did you find uh, a challenge in the room that you guys built, uh, the multi-purpose room with the, I guess it's like the piping system. What were the challenges putting that room together? And what did you learn there that you may do differently down the road? 
It costs too much. <laughs> okay. Um, so, so we that we inherited that room from uh, uh, from a DI color correcting visual effects type. So there was a lot of construction that was okay for visual, but not okay for all the SPL that we were going to give to it. And so um, while we had while we were in the construction phase, I think we would have fought harder for more construction. Because once those walls go up, once the fabric goes back up, then it's like, okay, how are we going to like make do? Um, I think that's a really good example, now that you bring it up, I think that's a really good example to call back to earlier in the conversation about considerations. We were at the considerations of a lot of our neighbors down there and, and what we were doing and, and how much we could take apart and um, you know that, that wasn't a, a, a stage in any capacity but it's a very nice room and we needed a home theater space so those two were lined up to do the right thing but we couldn't just make a magical audio paradise we had to contend with neighbors and and cost and you know can't do too much to the walls and the screen et cetera et cetera and we kind of rolled with it, you know. There was as we were going on, like, okay, we got to take a little more drive off off here, and we'll, let's let's have, you know. And it kind of, it, you know, you just kind of as every project, I think, you know, you remodel a, a stage, you remodel a house, you just kind of find out new things, and you kind of like, you know, um, roll with the punches, really. And I think, uh, I think all in all, we're really happy with with the way that room came out. Um, to, to really little things that I would say were different, like, you know, just we ended up putting um, a limestone caulking on the back of a, of a horn because it was honking. You know, it was just stuff that we kind of found along the way. To add to his question a little bit, can you talk about the, the trellis framing and how that became the, 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 the solution for that room with the flexibility of formats and stuff? For the overhead? Yeah. We're talking about uh, Theater One? No, home, home theater, I think. You're just talking about. Theater. Yeah, the home theater room with the trellis. Oh, the piping. Well, the great thing about the that is that once you build that box, you can move. You know, those speakers have moved four or five times. We kind of tweak here and tweak there, and so that was. Um, and everyone, I mean, everyone has a different opinion on where the rear surround should be or where the side surround should be, and so you kind of because it was the piping, we get to go. Okay, well, let's try it. If you want it, you want it at at 110 degrees. We'll put it there and then see who, if, if the guy who wants it at 90 complains less. And, and, did, you, did, and you find that, sorry, did you find that the piping at the SPL that you guys were working at, or the standards 85 and 82, mm -hmm. was the piping system have any? It does have a ring. And we are, um, I mean, I think we have, we've been working with it, but there is like, we want to like wrap it in Dubatine to kind of get a little bit of a ring out. And I think there's insulation inside too. Like yeah. we've, we've started that process. Maybe there's there's more to do. But yeah, the, that was like I was saying earlier. The the stuff that's physically in the room, how to contend with it, make sure it's not rattling and ringing and stuff. And so I've done a number of home theater mixes in there, uh, Atmos or not, and uh, it, it it's very minimal. If there is still ringing, I imagine it's only for the really loud stuff because I think it's been uh, I think it's been really well attended to over the course of a couple of sessions of. Let's, let's tweak this and let's tweak that. Um, but it's also really nice, like he was saying, to be able to adjust slightly because there's certainly a spec from everybody's um, home theater format. There's a spec about how your room should be set up. And so that room has the ability to do that. But there's also some real world considerations of like, ah, people don't put their surrounds there. They put them 
somewhere else because it's in their living room and there's a couch in the way. And so if somebody feels really strongly that that should be a consideration during the home theater mix, we can do that. Yeah, I think the trust system is a, is a great solution. The only downside really to it is aesthetics. And if you, um, if you have a, a place that you don't want to like show off a bunch of black pipes, then you know, you're going to have to find a way that makes it a little more sexy. But or maybe the aesthetic's amazing if you really like black pipes. So, you know. <laughs> and with that, we will end the panel. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you very much for coming out. I really appreciate it.